the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. From policy to culture, principles to politics, this is The Seth Liebson Show. Welcome back. As we do every Tuesday, we bring in Lewis Holman and Hugh Holman. Lewis is the managing partner of Insight Analytics. InsightAnalyticsLLC.com is his website. Hugh Holman is an attorney, the former mayor of Tempe, and the founder of a school. We were talking just in the last segment how rare it is to find people who have three or more careers. It was a funny conversation that yes. started out of nowhere uh, about Steve Martin, who started with stand-up, went into substantial acting, and now is probably known to people under 30 as a musician, as, right. a, as, a, as, a, as a banjo player. And it was fun. There, there aren't that many examples. We had uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course, uh, bodybuilder, uh, actor, and uh, governor. Yeah. And it dawned on me, you uh, have three or more, certainly, uh, mayor of Tempe, founder of a school, uh, educator, and uh, attorney, and you do other work, too, political consulting, et cetera. You may be getting four. I, I may get a prize. You may get a and the prize. prize is I get to appear on Fred this Thompson, show. Someone, uh, Jim Ryan, said Fred, Fred Thompson, Thompson yep. right? He made his bones as an attorney in the Watergate uh, minority hearings. Uh, yeah. hearings. Then he became a well-known actor, and then, of course, he became a U.S. senator as well and a candidate for president. And then went back to acting. And then went back to acting. It's hard to find, hard to find three distinct careers that are notable, that, where you succeed. Fair you enough. know. Yeah. All, anyway, it was just kind of a well, fun, thank you. Yeah, it, fun departure. It's, it's been great stuff. I guess I've just followed my nose, and I would encourage others to do that, especially my children. Oh, here's a one. I, 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 I want to leave the topic, but I can't because this is really good. Chuck Connors. NBA, MLB, The Rifleman, author. There you go. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's. I, pretty... I didn't know I got to count author separately, so I get that. <laughs> I've got two you, books. You guys, I'm <laughs> struggling to count author. You guys. That's not true. You've written some. I know, books. and you guys are just dismissing it. I, I don't dismiss it. Anyway. I don't dismiss it. If you haven't read Seth's books, you ought to I'm read them. T- I'm tired of the Arizona Republic, so I thought it would be fun to go to the front page of the L.A. Times website. California posts another single-day record for new coronavirus cases. This one was interesting to me. This subheadline was interesting to me. Rise in coronavirus cases has slowed, but San Francisco braces for holiday spike. You know what interests me about that is we covered the story last week for as hard hit as San Francisco was on COVID, so to speak. They had six times the number of drug overdose deaths. No one seems to care about this anymore. Correct. And it's still been the problem for this entire pandemic uh, narrative Mm -hmm. is that the cures that have been imposed upon our societies have uh, caused significant unintended, maybe they were intended, consequences. The drug and alcohol addiction, the horrors that children are going through, uh, that's in this country, around the world, the same thing, plus significant uh, increases in poverty and uh, 
world poverty and child exactly poverty right. and, uh, and the destruction uh, of the American middle class, the loss of small businesses. What's you know, this new these... phrase, food insecurity? We used to call it hunger. That's correct. Hunger. Now it's called food insecurity because we have to make everything longer. The quiet part was said out loud last week in a Politico headline. Let me give you this headline from Politico. Locked down California runs out of reasons for surprising surge. Correct. And that actually is the best uh, indicator. And there are starting to be significant studies done that look at the correlation between the actions taken by government to protect us from COVID-19 and the actual change in the trajectory of the disease. We talked at some length last week, and to repeat, the idea that we have new variants of the disease coming out of places like London should not surprise anyone because the human efforts to change the trajectory of the virus have caused the evolution of the virus. For example, if you wear a mask that is stopping the spread of the virus version that can be halted by a mask, which means only the version that might not be halted would be spread around the world, and that would become the successful strain of the virus. Lo and behold, what do we have in London and now lots of other places? A strain of the virus that's much more easily transmitted among human beings and overcomes the obstacles we put in its way. Uh, and no, it's not one specific virus that changed itself. It's that we have, by our actions, caused the version of the virus that overcomes those hurdles to be successful. It's the only one left in the field. That's exactly right. So we've imposed a whole new set of challenges in, by way of selective pressure on this virus where it then, you know, is comes out on the other end. You get this set of original viruses that were more predisposed to succeed under the sort of the new terms that we've we've put down. But what's also very interesting about this is that the emergence of new strains and new new types of, of variants. COVID variants, yeah, um, indicate that you know reinfection is likely significantly more possible that, than what we thought at one point. It also means then that as the virus continues to mutate, what is now a useful vaccine in the future may not be a useful vaccine, and so it may. And pardon me uh, for making such a. a Blythe comparison end up quite a lot like the flu, where in fact we do need we do get regular seasonal variants and regular viruses. I'm sorry, regular vaccines developed for it, and then it becomes sort of endemic to humanity. So that I fear is sort of where we're going to be, but that that ha that idea has not yet sunk in to our our those that would rule us, and and so what we have then is just a bunch of people trying to treat it like it's effectively still going to be quashed for good and suppressing our liberty in the name of doing something that is then totally ineffective. And fails to have the cost-benefit analysis and even the conversation about saving certain lives today may cost us different and further losses in the future. And this is an example. So we have, uh, we have taken steps that may cause the virus to mutate. No, it's not a single virus uh, uh, piece that turns into something else. It's that the successful versions of the virus overcome the barricades we've put in its place. Right. And when you think about <coughs> particularly states like California, where they close down all these businesses and you talk about the shifting categories of people or the shifting uh, parts of the population we're trying to protect, it's becoming increasingly clear, is it not, that we're protecting or trying to, trying to protect 
80-year-olds by affecting basically everyone who's under the age of 65. Which, from the beginning, has been a puzzlement. How is, we learn very quickly that there's a group of people who are most at risk, very old people and folks with comorbidities, and yet in the name of... Uh, uh, equality, uh, no. equality that we treat everybody equally, we're going to force everyone into the same solutions, uh, and those solutions are you all have to stay home, notwithstanding the fact that it's still painfully clear that people under 20 are not very much at risk, and it appears don't actually spread the virus. That then means we could open schools, which raises the question, what teachers should go into the classroom? Or are there a group of people who could be in classrooms so that students could congregate and that the teachers who have comorbidities or of certain age could teach from outside the classroom? Those are the kinds of solutions we could have been investigating. But instead, it is no, nobody should teach and no student should be in class, ignoring, as you pointed out from the beginning, the uh, unintended consequences of the drug addiction and alcoholism and child abuse and family uh, violence and all the other kinds of things that are coming up in the society. I was go ahead. Well, let me just say this. I was surprised to see that we have a super superintendent of public instruction in this state. So the basically the, the Kathy Hoffman, who is the superintendent of, uh, of of schools here in Arizona, was saying that the, the school should, should be shut down for an additional two weeks. It, it was a surprising thing to oh, see worse, a superintendent worse. of public instruction saying schools should not be open. Worse, saying the governor right. should mandate that. Right. That she, it wasn't yeah. enough for her to go right. out on the right. limb and say, right. I say that everybody should shut down. Right. She doesn't have the legal authority to cause that outcome. And all the governor has responded with is, I may have the legal authority to do that, but the option already exists and it's a local control issue. Why is that so hard for some people to understand? Yeah, why is that so hard? It's because I think they have these ideas that we're going to do it if we reach a certain level of infection, right? 9% in New York, for example. And we've never really reached that number, but they still close down anyway because of, I think, the clearest example, the clearest statement you ever put out on this, Lewis, was people feel they have to do something. But the something that they're doing turns out to have a much worse effect than no. doing nothing. Better productive. I, I think that's very right. Actually, though, you, Dad, said something very interesting just now. For once. About, again, I get a point. <laughs> uh, about the, the sort of strange egalitarianism yeah, at play here yeah, yeah, yeah. in trying to protect everyone, treating 80-year-olds as if they're 20-year-olds. Yeah. I think we can come back to that if, if that's appropriate. Seth? Yeah. I'd like to when we come back because uh, I've thought that there was this tendency. You know the story of Harrison Bergeron that Kurt Vonnegut wrote? where all the people who are handsome or pretty, if they're uh, females, have to wear you know, a bag over their head or something to make them as ugly as the rest of the population. Anyone who has a better IQ than anyone else has an implant in their head that scrambles their thoughts. It's this radical equality. Exactly, that, yes. Yeah, let's come back on that. We'll be right back.
Gene Simmons and the boys, welcome back. I have Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman with us in studio, 602-508-0960, as I do every Tuesday, third hour, talking politics, talking COVID. Um, right before the break, uh, Lewis, we were talking about <clears throat> um, radical egalitarianism. I don't have a better phrase for it. I'm open to one where we treat everyone alike. Sure. So we were talking about this in the context of lockdowns, where we are effectively treating everyone as if, as if they're they're the same and then must follow the same sort of types of precautions. And we're, we're rolling out all of these universalist policies in the hope that just one life will be saved. And it occurs to me that, you know, if, if we want to look at this sort of like an actuary might, like an insurance actuary, um, that there's a there's a different way to go about this, right? Rather than than thinking about how many lives is this, how many people have died, another way that you can think about it is how many life years have we lost? And so the issue here is that COVID nineteen, and again, please don't think that I'm utterly callous for saying this, but let me just roll out the idea that the elderly are most affected. The median age of, of someone who succumbs to COVID nineteen is seventy eight years old. And which really is is puts them at an expected lifespan of about another six months to a year, typically. So there was... Without COVID. That without, had, without independent COVID. of COVID. Yeah. So if you think about that and you look at sort of the reporting that comes out that says, oh, if we only had all of these different countermeasures, we would save a thousand lives in the state of Arizona. At this, We would have saved a thousand lives by this point. Well, you could think about that by taking, all right, a thousand lives, but most of them are very, very elderly. So in terms of man years saved, it's not 50 years per person times 1,000 is 50,000 man years. The number is probably only closer to about two or 3,000 man years on the margin. And so if you think about that, then that is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 60 cradle-to-grave human lives, mm-hmm. not 1,100. It's a very different calculation. Mm-hmm. And the root of this, and the reason I sort of bring this up in the context of, of radical egalitarianism, is that human lives are not equal in the sense that they are they are identically the same and therefore perfectly interchangeable. They're not like how do- a dollar is equal to another dollar. It's more like this mathematical concept of what's called isomorphism, which is basically they're similar in the same way that a coffee cup and a donut are similar, in that they are solids with one hole going through them. They share a number of properties, but you can't change them quite so uh, uh, directly. Directly, yes. And so we're stuck in this this state of thinking that treats all as a, all of us as if we're perfectly the same, and then demands these sort of universalist solutions for all of us. And it's it's radically inefficient, and it doesn't deal with the fact that our lives do in fact vary. Which is why all of us agree, the three of us, that. Solutions should be solved locally, and this is why we continue to advocate for local approaches to all of these things, because those who are closest to a problem are best informed on how to solve that problem and have a better read on what the trade-offs are going to be. And so to pick up on the earlier point about California, California's taken the most extreme uh, efforts to slow slash stop the virus. One would expect, therefore, that it would have had the greatest success. And, in fact, the data is showing us the opposite, that it is one of the more troubling places. Arizona initially took some fairly severe efforts, and then the governor determined, given what happened in the trajectory, those things clearly did not have a correlation, a high record of success, given what was happening. 
So now we have news stories coming out with our Arizona Republic, uh, Will Humble again being quoted, that if only the governor would do the things that are based in evidence-based science, we would have better outcomes here, and our hospitals are being filled because he refuses to do those things. Like what, Will? Well, of course, masks. And the Republic then cites the Washington Institute that does that previously did a study that said if only everybody would be wearing masks, we'd save 100,000 lives. Of course, their assumption was that only half the population was already wearing masks, when in fact 80 to 85 percent of the population is wearing masks. That's our problem, Will. You've got most of us wearing masks in situations that you would call us to do so, and it's not having the impact. The marginal change in the direction of the virus is not being impacted by wearing masks or not, whether the governor signs a piece of paper that says you must wear, must wear a mask. In most cities in the state, in the Maricopa County, the largest county, you already have to wear a mask. In, in the county, you have to wear a mask. So that to say that if only we had a mask mandate to put the governor on the hook, why does Kathy Hoffman, the superintendent of public instruction, want to say if only the governor would do this? It positions her beautifully politically. She has no consequence for saying those things. It plays to her base. And in fact, the governor's response is pretty good. I'm sorry, lady. All the schools already have the option to shut down if they think that's appropriate. So rather than step in and take power from the local folks who can make best that decision, they can work with the parents, they can work with the students, they can work with their teacher base and decide whether they should be open or not. That seems to me to be exactly the model of this society. And now we've got a president coming into office who insists that he's going to try national solutions to local problems. We can be guaranteed worse results as a result. That's what he, I suppose, means that we're in a, in a sense uh, that we're facing, that, that, that our darkest days are ahead of us because he's going to plunge us into darker days if he has his way. That's what I fear. I uh, truly I, do fear that. I think you're and, right with his phone and a pen. Yeah. And the eternal irony, of course, is that our darkest days not come not from external sources right. but from ourselves. Right. That's the point. That's the point. Um, the question I get from time to time, Hugh, and you, you've you've been on several uh, in, in several uh, areas of professional life that that could address this, is when uh, teachers themselves decide not to show up to work, they either have sick outs or they just simply state they refuse to work. It it, it puts uh, parents as much as children, as much as the community, into a really tough bind, doesn't it? Well, in fact, it's in my view because of the failed leadership we have. At, at at the state level in education, uh, as someone who's run schools successfully faced challenges, that's when one calls upon the leaders who are principals to lead their troops to come up with solutions that address the concerns, but do it in a way that can bring the institution forward. We don't see that now. We see instead, first, with the theme from the Democratic Party, that all is lost. We must lock down. We must shut down, which, in my view, had to do with trying to destroy the economy on Donald Trump's watch so it would be an easier win. Now we've got no easy way to turn that narrative around. So uh, when the transition occurs... I had thought that we would have a new administration that would realize that it needed to turn this around and have the economy start improving on that new watch, and I don't see it. Instead, I see the Democratic Party and the colleagues in Congress taking steps that likely will damage the economy. Do you remember what this looks like? It looks like 2009. It looks like the very slowest recovery uh, since the Great Depression under Barack Obama. 
And I fear that is the kind of pain we're going to suffer, not just the lockdowns, but as small businesses collapse, we're going to be throwing more and more money at people and encouraging more and more of our citizens to sit at home on the couch and eat bonbons. And and more screen time for children, just what we need. I'm Seth Leapson. They're the Hallman, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have the Hallmans in, as I do every uh, Tuesday, Lewis and Hugh Hallman. Uh, just one quick comment, unless it, you want to take it further. I got an email asking um, uh, on the effect of obesity in the epidemic, and the, but probably better for a physician to answer that directly. But, base, but I have read that obesity increases the death risk of COVID by something like 50%, close to 50%. And it does take us into a certain area that we'll maybe save for another show unless you want to delve into it, which is things we haven't been able to talk about a lot. Well, and and a, obesity and seems to be one of them. Sure. But it's, it's, it, it is a killer in this society, and people are hesitant to talk about it. But it, it's responsible for anywhere between four and 500,000 deaths a year. Well, let's, let's make it clear. We can jump right to oh, that okay. because in our current society, we don't want to fat shame anybody. Right. But the reality is that uh, obesity is the indicator for heart attack. It's yep. the indicator for diabetes yep. and other maladies. So as we've been, I looking, didn't know you were going to do this. This is great. As, okay. As we were hypertension looking, as well, all sorts of other yeah. issues. So as we're looking at causes of death, we still have uh, right now we've got uh, as of December thirty across the country two hundred seventy four thousand deaths from COVID, uh, three hundred thousand dollars if you uh, thousand lives if you include all deaths that have COVID related to them. That is, uh, you you died of something else, but you still had tested positive COVID. The number of heart attacks in the same period of time. Death by cardiovascular uh, disease, mm-hmm. 649,000 people. Right. And a huge chunk of those are highly related to uh, obesity. Yeah. Uh, there are, then, of course, you've got cancer that comes as a result of obesity as well. There are 570,000 people who died in the same period of cancer of some form or another. So uh, on that note, actually, I was in a in a position where I was doing medical research, oh, okay. actually, and one of the one of the data sets I worked with was clinical information, and I was figuring out what the marginal impact was of obesity on you know bad surgical outcomes and and issues like that, and it's profound. Yeah. You know, it's orders of magnitudes profound. Like being morbidly obese is is enormously bad for you. Not even just in in the terms of of hypertensions, but if you get surgery and then come back with other, you know, other issues, blood clots, things like that, like every single type of complication is made worse by the presence of obesity that I was tracking. And that's absolutely true with COVID. So one of the calls one would like to make is that we all need to take some personal responsibility here. And uh, the uh, physician that I'm married to spends her life talking to people about the three causes of death, smoking, Drinking and overeating. Mm-hmm. 
And if we just address those three things, people's quality of life would improve significantly and the length of life would improve significantly and the cost of health care would drop precipitously. But this is then going back to the point about novel fears versus things that you are used to. It doesn't matter necessarily to us that the fact that, you know, that more people die of, of hypertension or heart attack or whatever you have, you know, than COVID. But COVID just scares it because it's new and we're not used to the fact that people are, are dying from it mm-hmm. yet, frankly, mm-hmm. which is then deranging so much of our response in comparison. Can you imagine the same kind of monetary outflows that have gone to COVID going towards like any kind of heart disease or things like that? Two trillion, you know, I'm sorry, trillions and trillions of dollars. It would be... It would be unreal. Well, I think we could have solved the opioid epidemic with that kind of money, to I, be I quite honest with you. Don't disagree. Or enhanced it. Yeah. You know, yeah. frankly, it's, I think it's more likely that we would have enhanced it you know, with my philosophy on, <laughs> on uh, second-order effects and unintended consequences. Another discussion. But let me uh, do this. Let me set up for the next segment how Arizona—we did Los Angeles and California, but talk to me about the Arizona media. Yeah, so the it's very interesting. ABC 15 Arizona actually just released an article, I believe it was today. It might have been late yesterday. Uh, describing how Arizona is, in fact, the high, the the place in the world with more infections than anywhere else. So that that is, Arizona is the place in the world with more infections than any place else you could possibly be. More infections here than anywhere, they say. And the way that they arrive at this staggering conclusion is they've compared the seven-day rolling average of new cases per capita from with Arizona and all other 50 states. They determined that Arizona was higher than all of the rest of them over a, a seven-day period. And that that rate was also higher than the average for every country in the world. So Arizona must be the most dangerous place. Hold that thought. Let's pick up on that when we come back. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Hugh Hallman. And the other one is Lewis Hallman. How beauteous mankind is, oh brave new world. The Tempest, right? Oh brave new world. We'll be right back. Oh my Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I take it every single day. It's Balance of Nature. It's the best product I've ever taken. It's the product I'm most happy to endorse and promote. I think it is the single most effective whole food supplement on the market. One daily dose gives you 10 servings of 31 different fruits and vegetables. Powerful, potent stuff from cayenne and garlic and kale and broccoli to pineapple, papaya, blueberries, and bananas, all in vegetarian capsules. If you don't like vegetarian capsules, you can easily open them up and sprinkle it in a drink or put it on some food. If you prefer to do it that way, we just take them once a day and you're good to go. And Balance of Nature has a great offer right now, free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. Give them a call at 800-246-8751. Or go to balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Lewis, uh, 
I wanted you to follow up on the yes. uh, or complete that thought on how Arizona has more infe- more infections than anywhere else in the world. So the headline put up by the brilliant folks at ABC 15 Arizona reads, Arizona has the highest rate of COVID-19 in the world, latest data shows. And the way that they come to this staggering conclusion is that they take the, the, the data of infections for the last week, and they've come up with the fact that over that week, Arizona had... 121.8 newly confirmed infections per 100,000 people. This is higher than any of the other 50 states. The second highest, they note, is California at 93.4 per 100,000 people. They then compare this to nations around the world, and they find that the highest sovereign state, I'm sorry, the, the sovereign state with the most COVID infections over the same period is uh, uh, Chechia which has 93.4, again, lower than the Arizona rate. And so through this, because they can't find any country or any state, they claim that Arizona is a region that has then the highest rate of COVID-19 in the world. And this is patently absurd to me because the geographic border making up a state or an administrative regional area is not necessarily an apples-to-apples comparison or necessarily the best one. So, for instance, you could pick any group somewhere of eight or 10 million people in the same place, like, say, New York City, and compare Arizona's data to that. Mm. And so if you're willing to just arbitrarily (laughs) make up a list and find uh, that our state has the highest number of anything on that list, then you can come up with pretty much whatever you'd like to say. I can, in fact, right now, perform the same level of analysis about the the authorship of of the article and conclude, in fact, scientifically, air quotes, that the author is a moron. <laughs> and so... No, it makes... I, 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 I get what you're saying. I mean, are you draw an arbitrary line. Yeah, New York City would outbeat Arizona by, by any question. But yes. That's, but yeah. but this, is, this is exactly how we are continually kept in fear by these people. And one more point that the one has to remember, that the data collected that is being used to make that point from the state of Arizona comes by the state having big bunches of data that are actually from not just the last week, they are reported in that week, but came from the long period starting on uh, uh, February 1st. And the longer the pandemic goes on, the more prior dates that exist that are the source of many of these things. So, in fact, we dug down trying to figure out why the Arizona Republic's reporting such funny numbers, and it's because hidden in the Maricopa County coronavirus disease, COVID-19, thanks to Lou's snooping around, that the public health report uh, that the county had provided actually was all the data from the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th of January all clumped together. Why is that? Because it was the holiday weekend. And if you're in the middle of a uh, health crisis and a pandemic, the last thing you want to have is your health workers at the county working over the holiday. Can't burn the midnight oil in these kinds of crises. Yeah. It's got to be smooth, steady, and easy. Yeah. Yep. Um, thank you for doing this. Uh, one of the things all eyes are on, if I can just take a moment of departure, um, because I think it would be an affectation not to, is, of course, the state of Georgia. Uh, which uh, the elections uh, will uh, election returns are just coming in. They're somewhere under 20 percent about now, which is too early to tell anything. But um, you said something earlier, Hugh, which I wanted to underscore when you talked about Joe Biden governing with a phone and a pen. And what you meant by that was executive order, I think. 
That's correct. So and, Barack Obama famously said that he had a phone and a pen, and he could then therefore lead our country through executive order, and he did. And up until to. about June or July, you would hear people say, you know, as important as this presidential race is, the Senate's even more important. And you have heard people say that for years and years and years. We shall not. We shouldn't forget that. Some among the three of us in this room Some on this show, <laughs> even on in this regular room, occasion. On and one of the reasons is the only way to stop an executive order is through the federal judicial branch and the judiciary runs through the US Senate. Two two ways, one is through the legislative branch and the other through the judiciary because the legislative branch can take action to uh create law that yeah, effectively guts. Fair enough. But the challenge we face is that in this instance the Senate uh, holds the key to whether or not uh, Joe Biden will face his worst nightmare, I think. Because I do believe Joe Biden, that got elected president, is more moderate than his running mate and is much more moderate than the direction his party has gone. And he is going to become captive. He will be, as Tolstoy wrote about the czar and Napoleon, having to run to stay in front of his troops, uh, given the direction they're going. And the direction they're going to want to go is far, far left. And during the campaign, uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris refuse to comment or at least verify that their intention would be to pack the court so that they could get a judiciary that would uh, uphold the laws as they saw that they should be written. They would seek to create two new states and potentially roll back through a constitutional uh, amendment of the Electoral College. The reason we have the Electoral College is the same reason we had a Senate that was elected by the states. It was the compromise that the geniuses who put together our Constitution understood. The greatest threat to the continuation of this society was the passions of the people, which will flame up and overwhelm the systems that were put in place. The, our founders looked at what had happened in, uh, in Athens, what had happened in Rome, what had happened in Greece and, and uh, the Roman Empire, and saw that when the passions of the people easily were ignited, they could overwhelm the systems that protected the, the liberty and rights of all the individuals over the long run. And now we're facing a group of people who desperately want to change the direction of this country because they'll be in power. And the problem they should understand is the next turn of the dice, the next time around the merry-go-round, they might not be in power. And we, as conservatives, should stop thinking that government supplies us power that gives us the ability to control life. We have to understand that our founders said, mind your own business. We'll be right back. Little Eric Clapton there as we head into our final segment with some concluding thoughts. I wanted to give it over to you, Lewis, on this. I thought you had an interesting read on some stuff. So the the thing that's kind of on my mind right now is that the fundamental triumph of Western civilization has been the supremacy of the individual, not only through our governmental process with the development of republicanism and restrained governance, but even... In our religious text, you can see that in the Abrahamic texts, the prophets are always lowborn. They're very common people. And you can contrast this with Siddhartha, the Buddha, you know, all of these kings and princes that make up, you know, figures of the state effectively that make up the religions in, in many, many other parts of the world. Collectivist and so, societies. Yes, uh, that's a better word for it. And so I would caution us as we 
worry about our health and our safety and as we seek to trade away our liberty for security and as we are then presented with more and more universal solutions that are tailored not to us as individuals, but to the hopes, fears, and desires of those who rule us instead. And so if we can try and capture and take forward this this spirit of, of the individual, because truly the individual is in fact the ultimate mm-hmm. minority. Mm-hmm. And if we are truly interested in safeguarding the weakest among us, then that has to start at individual liberty. No, I think that's right. I think it's important to remember people talk about the different rights that they find in our founding or in the Constitution. A lot of people say state rights. and It's actually about individual rights. Everything in the whole grand design is to uh, raise the rights of the individual. It's not about the importance of the leadership. It's about the governed. It's about the governed. And you can get that from any of the Federalist papers. I particularly like Federalist 10, which also gets you into the question of what you were talking about earlier, the factions that we try to tame. Until tomorrow, God bless you both, and God bless you all. Class dismissed.